Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Welcome to another episode of Critical Matters, the sound critical care podcast. Today we have a very interesting topic that has been a topic of controversy and discussion for several years now in our field, which is the use of corticosteroids in critical illness. It's a great pleasure to have as our guest, Dr. Steven Pastores, who is a critical care medicine physician, is director of critical care medicine fellowship, training and research programs at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, and also a professor of medicine and anesthesiology and medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. Dr. Pastores is actively involved in critical care medicine at a national and international level. He serves as a member of the Board of Regents of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. He is also a member of several editorial boards, including Chess Journal, Critical Care Medicine, and the Journal of Critical Care. Dr. Pastores was the recipient of the Distinguished Service Award and the Safar Global Partner Award from the Society of Critical Care Medicine for exceptional leadership contributions to the vision and mission of the society. It's a great pleasure to introduce Dr. Pastores. Steve, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you, Sergio. It's a pleasure. So as I said, today we're going to talk about a topic that seems to be on a pendulum in critical care, which is corticosteroids and critical illness. And it seems that every 10 years, we have uh, some new information or new approaches. And as we move forward, we seem to be uh, becoming much more specific and I think uh, educated in what really this means for our critical ill patients. And I think it's a timely discussion since uh, Steve, you have co-chaired a recent a guideline from the Society of Critical Care Medicine and uh, the Society, uh, European Society of Intensive Care Medicine that has just been published, I understand it, Critical Care Medicine and Intensive Care Medicine as a two-part document talking about CIRSI. So maybe we should start with what is CIRSI? So CIRSI uh, stands for Critical Illness-Related Corticosteroid Insufficiency. It's a, a term and an acronym that we came up with uh, back in the 2000 to 2007 period when we were charged to come up with the first set of guidelines on the use of corticosteroids in critically ill. At, at that time, our knowledge and understanding of critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency uh, was uh, rather very basic and, and, and somewhat lacking in granularity. Uh, we envisioned at that time, and most clinicians in practice thought that's, that what we were referring to largely was a, a syndrome akin to relative adrenal insufficiency, that there was some impairment of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis that was pronounced in critically ill patients, and that maybe uh, there was some resistance of the tissues to the action of glucocorticoids. So that was what our understanding was at the time, and that corticosteroids were going to be used, and if it were in conditions associated with CIRSI, uh, it would be uh, not so much uh, necessarily a replacement uh, uh, in situations where it was felt to be deficient, but rather trying to overcome perhaps some of that uh, corticosteroid resistance problem. But it really was fundamentally uh, somewhat of a very basic uh, understanding at the time. Uh, fast forward 10 years later, uh, there has been a greater understanding of the syndrome. Um, and, and really one of the other pillars of the syndrome is that in addition to the impairment of the HPA axis in critical illness and the tissue resistance to corticosteroids, there's really an alteration in the metabolism of cortisol that's largely been uh, uh, dictated by uh, the uh, uh, mechanisms that break down cortisol uh, in the liver and the kidney. And so it's the combination of these three factors right now that we think is responsible for why this syndrome develops uh, in, in, in more specific conditions like sepsis, ARDS, uh, but may also be evident in, in other critical care syndromes as well. 
and I think like like you mentioned, this has been an evolution of our understanding. We started this maybe in the 1980s by trying to modulate inflammation and sepsis with high-dose steroids, and that has evolved into, it seems like every decade, a different iteration of our understanding. And now, uh, coming on 2018, 10 years after your, your previous guidelines, we're now talking of a syndrome related to critical illness in general that has many causes, as you mentioned, that we're much more aware now uh, than we were before. Quick question regarding symptoms. I mean, I think it's always good to remember that we're clinicians and start with symptoms and signs. Um, it seems that a lot of the uh, potential signs and symptoms related to critical illness, related corticosteroid insufficiency or CERCI are very nonspecific. Are there any that you want to comment that might be of more use at the bedside for our intensivist? So mo most of the studies uh, uh, examining the condition of CERCI have, have largely focused um, in sepsis and septic shock uh, and in the acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. Um, and many of the signs and symptoms of these conditions uh, can really have very uh, nonspecific uh, manifestations. Uh, I think the, the classic manifestations that we would think about at the bedside are the conditions where someone uh, uh, is hypotensive, is not responding appropriately to fluid therapy, and they, they additionally require uh, a vasoactive or vasopressor agent. Uh, that would be like one classic manifestation where you, this syndrome might be thought about, uh, which is what we normally see in patients who, who go into septic shock. Uh, the other presenting signs, as I mentioned, uh, like fever, electrolyte uh, imbalances, um, generally are, are common enough in, in, in other settings. And so it's sometimes very hard to distinguish what truly is CERCI to other conditions that may be related to not necessarily infectious conditions, but more metabolic or hormonal abnormalities like classic adrenal insufficiency, for example, uh, would be very different uh, in, in terms of how we would compare that to the more traditional syndromes that we see in ICU patients like sepsis, ARDS, and, and even in, in patients with major trauma. Absolutely. And I think that as a take-home message for the, for, the, for the listeners, really, the cardiovascular signs of hypotension, refractory to fluid, decreased sensitivity to catecholamines in the context of a high cardiac index clearly seem to be something that we see often with our septic shock patients who might uh, have manifestations of CERCI. Steve, what about diagnostic? And I know that there's been a lot of debate, uh, and I haven't reviewed the literature lately in terms of what's the best diagnostic tool other than clinical intuition for trying to establish a diagnosis. I know that there's a lot of a controversy in this area and, may, and perhaps not necessarily a definitive answer, but what, what, what is the, the guidance from, from, from the, the group that you co-chaired in the guidelines? So this was a, a very challenging question uh, for us. And in fact, we ended up being unable um, to make a very clear cut recommendation on what the best single diagnostic test should be to identify this syndrome. Uh, classically, we use um, the ACTH stimulation test and we use the 250 microgram test where we get a basal level of cortisol. Uh, we then inject intravenously 250 micrograms of cosyntropin or or synthetic ACTH, and then we check the increment in the cortisol level from baseline at 30 minutes and at 60 minutes. And we've been classically taught from other studies, uh, including the study by my co-chair, uh, Jalali Anand, that the failure to increase from base cell at, at 30 and 60 minutes, or what we call the delta cortisol, uh, greater than nine, and if someone did not uh, get a response greater than nine, then they would be uh, deemed a non-responder, and that would be something that would uh, be uh, seen commonly uh, in patients um, with uh, CIRSI. Uh, 
there are many questions surrounding the ability of that test to actually really distinguish patients with or without the syndrome. Uh, the question about the 250 uh, dose of ACTH being supraphysiologic. Uh, other studies have used one microgram, um, and there have been different sensitivity and specificity rates uh, to either of these two tests. And so uh, other types of tests have been envisioned, including a random cortisol, including uh, getting salivary cortisol even has come up. Uh, and other types of testing to try to get at it. But I, we were particularly challenged with, with, with the question of what's the single best test. And basically we were unable to make a recommendation as to whether the delta cortisol or the random plasma cortisol uh, would actually be truly diagnostic of this syndrome. We felt that uh, most clinicians still go and use uh, the uh, 250 uh, microgram uh, synthetic ACTH dose and looking for that uh, less than nine uh, delta cortisol change at 30 and 60 minutes. Uh, others we know uh, like to use the random plasma cortisol knowing that in critically ill patients you lose that diurnal variation in cortisol levels. So it really doesn't matter what time of the day you're getting a random cortisol. But in reviewing the studies uh, for the uh, task force uh, guideline, we simply could not uh, get uh, consensus, meaning 80% of the task force members could not agree uh, on making a, a single recommendation on which test to use for this diagnosis. So that's just really as far uh, as we could go regarding that question. So from the, from the point of view of the, of the task force and the available evidence right now, either an ACTH stim with cosentropin at 250 or a random serum total cortisol in a critically ill patient, for example, somebody who's requiring vasopressor support that is below 10 uh, would be potential tests that we could use, but it's hard to really recommend one over the other. Would that be the correct interpretation? Yes, and we felt that uh, in many patients, particularly those who are already in septic shock requiring vasopressors, the decision to use corticosteroids uh, should not rely on having to do this test as a requisite when deciding to use corticosteroid therapy in patients with refractory septic shock who are already adequately fluid repleted and are continuing to require vasopressor therapy to uh, maintain uh, an acceptable blood pressure, in this case, a mean arterial pressure of at least 65 millimeters of mercury or greater. Excellent. I think that's a very important point that these are tests that are available that have their strengths and limitations, but in the context of specific populations that we'll dive in in a, in a little bit, it might not be a, like you said, a prerequisite to initiate therapy. So we'll get there. One more question regarding diagnostic testing. So I remember that around the time that the cortical study was published, there was a lot of discussion about plasma total versus free cortisol. Any comments on that, Steve? Yes. So there was a very nice uh, study um, uh, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2004 that looked at uh, plasma-free cortisol uh, being uh, more helpful uh, than uh, total cortisol, realizing that free cortisol really is the what we call the bioactive form of cortisol. And critically ill patients are known to have low serum concentrations of import, an important protein uh, called cortisol binding globulin. And most patients have low albumins. And so in patients uh, with very low levels of cortisol binding proteins, the use of the serum total cortisol, therefore, may not uh, predict free cortisol, which is really what you want to measure. Uh, and so um, that particular study uh, raised some concern about, you know, whether we should be switching and, and, and start using uh, free cortisol uh, rather than total cortisol. The problem uh, with measuring free cortisol levels, however, is that uh, the techniques to do this test are, are, as we say in the paper, uh, are rather cumbersome and not available in most laboratories 
uh, at many medical centers and the turnaround time is not fast enough uh, to get this test uh, available uh, immediately at the bedside. And, and so as a result of that, uh, we suggested against uh, using um, uh, free cortisol uh, and instead if, if favor the use of plasma uh, total cortisol for the diagnosis of CRC. Although as you will note, uh, Sergio, most of the recommendations throughout our guideline really are conditional recommendations yeah. or what, what used to be uh, called weak recommendations is using the strong versus weak uh, terminology. Uh, and that is what it means, therefore, is in the settings where we have given a conditional recommendation, we are really letting the uh, clinicians know at the bedside that based on the uh, uh, most current evidence uh, from the literature, uh, that these conditional recommendations, we're leaving it up to the judgment of the clinicians uh, based on their individualized decision-making for caring for these patients, that the evidence might be weak uh, in supporting this recommendation. And we quantify that level of evidence uh, from low to high, depending on the availability of randomized control trials and specific study populations. So for the question on free cortisol versus total cortisol, um, the evidence for that was very low. And so the recommendation uh, could only be made as conditional. Okay. And I think that it might be worth um, taking a little bit of a, a sidebar just to quickly um, it, it talk about the guidelines, uh, which really follow what I think most of our Society of Critical Care Medicine guidelines and similar guidelines are using is the grade system in terms of evaluating the available evidence and making recommendations. And like you mentioned, Steve, there's two categories of recommendations, strong versus conditional, which are usually phrased as we recommend versus we suggest. Could you mm -hmm. give us a little bit of a, 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 an idea to the audience? Um, we recommend or a strong a strong recommendation what does it mean for patients and what does it mean for for clinicians so there are many factors that are um, considered uh, we try to uh, make these guidelines to be truly applicable at the bedside by looking at it from the level of of many many factors and among among the many factors besides the evidence uh, was basically how applicable the, these recommendations were going to be depending on the values and preferences uh, uh, not only for the clinicians but also more importantly uh, for the patients and what the cost uh, implications might be so the recommendations from grade for example uh, really uh, factor in not only the quality of the evidence uh, balancing the risk and benefits of the treatment uh, the values and preferences as applicable for the patient and the cost of the interventions. And so uh, where we use the phrase, we recommend, we, we use that phrase for recommendations that are, are strong. And we use, we suggest for recommendations that uh, we would call conditional or synonymous to the older term, weak recommendations and making the clinicians and the bedside providers understand that for conditional recommendations where we only suggest, uh, we are not prescribing a specific you know, a, 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 a practice intervention that you should be doing, but rather, uh, in fact, cautioning and making sure that you're using uh, uh, that recommendation in, in a situation where uh, you, you feel is, is clinically appropriate, uh, balancing the risks and benefits of the corticosteroid intervention to the quality of the evidence and of course to the cost uh, implications. Excellent, I think that's a very important point. And also like you mentioned, the spirit of the guidelines is to serve as a tool based on a review of the literature by experts and not necessarily as a mandate. And especially when we don't have enough evidence, I think that clinicians need to understand how that decision-making has to be applied at the bedside at a very individual level for each patient. So I think that we can maybe jump in and talk a little bit more about the disease processes and where we stand today in terms of treating these patients with corticosteroids. And you had mentioned earlier that the three great groups of patients or big groups of patients in critical care where we think about CERCI and we think about treatment 
with corticosteroids include sepsis and septic shock, ARDS, and trauma. So why don't we start with uh, sepsis and septic shock? Um, tell us where we stand today, Steve, in terms of treating patients who have severe sepsis but are not, on, not in shock with corticosteroids. So we, we felt very strongly um, that for patients who have sepsis or even severe sepsis but not in shock, that corticosteroids are not to be recommended. And that corticosteroid use should only be recommended uh, in patients uh, who are in septic shock that is not responsive to fluid and requiring moderate to high dose vasopressor therapy. Uh, we, we quantified the dose of moderate to high dose as anything that would require 0.1 micrograms per kilogram of norepinephrine or its equivalent. Uh, I would caution though that, uh, you know, and, and I know I've been asked this a few times that, you know, depending on the patient's uh, uh, body weight, uh, you know, 0.1 micrograms per kilogram may not be truly considered to be a moderate dose. Somebody weighs 100 uh, uh, kilos, for example, well, that might only translate to 10 mics, and some might argue, well, that's maybe that's not even a moderate dose. But I, I think we leave that certainly for for clinicians. Uh, but I, I think most uh, clinicians will uh, see that anything that's above 10 mics uh, is in the moderate zone, and anything over 20 mics uh, of norepinephrine uh, uh, per minute would be considered to be a, a high dose range. So anybody that is fluid repleted and continues to require moderately high vasopressor requirement and is in septic shock, uh, we felt we could make a recommendation there. Uh, it is a conditional recommendation. Uh, we quantified the evidence there as still low. Uh, there are two uh, large trials that are going to have uh, new information for us. Uh, one is the trial called the Adrenal Trial, uh, which is going to be uh, uh, published hopefully soon, and that's from the Australia-New Zealand group. And the other is the Approach Trial uh, of corticosteroids alongside activated protein C. This was done before protein C got dropped. But the trial continued without the activated protein C arm. That's a Jalali Anane's trial in France. And these two studies will hopefully inform uh, further recommendations. Uh, and so depending on how those results come out, uh, we are anticipating uh, the need to update these guidelines perhaps in the next few months, again, depending on how um, those studies uh, uh, are resulted in the literature. So it sounds like we'll have to have you back again to give us an, an update on those on those exciting studies. But just to to uh, summarize and what you talked about in treating uh, severe sepsis and septic shock. So in patients who are not requiring vasopressors, there's probably no role to think about Cersei, test about Cersei, or um, treat them in general terms. And uh, in patients. Who, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. You want to comment on that, Steve? Go ahead. No, no, no. You're good. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And in, in patients who are in septic shock uh, and are requiring vasopressors at a moderate to high dose, and you've defined that based on the amount of norepinephrine, uh, we probably, as you had discussed earlier, would consider start treatment, starting treatment without necessarily having to go through the diagnostic testing. Is that correct? That is correct. We, we, we felt strongly, even though we graded the, the evidence as moderate and made a conditional recommendation against the use of corticosteroids uh, in adult patients with sepsis who are not in shock. And we also suggested that steroids only be used in patients who are in septic shock that's not responsive to fluid and moderate to high dose vasopressor therapy. So let's let's dive in a little bit in terms of the specifics of your practice based on, uh, obviously, you have a, a tremendous understanding of the literature and of the current guidelines. Um, if you had a patient uh, who you were treating who's, like you said, flu a fluid um, uh, resuscitated, who requires high doses of, uh, sorry, of vasopressor, let's say even 
more than one vasopressor, how would you treat that patient for CIRSI? So, I mean, if, so normally um, uh, a patient that's requiring high dose of one presser and a second presser is, is, is being introduced, uh, my, my usual practice, Sergio, is when I see the norepinephrine dose escalating to about 15 mics per minute or greater, I already uh, uh, consider starting a second agent. And that second agent uh, is, is more commonly vasopressin, uh, but certainly epinephrine uh, can be uh, used instead of vasopressin with the goal of trying to reduce uh, the uh, uh, dose of, of norepinephrine or at least to try to come off norepinephrine faster. Uh, in those patients that are on a single dose of, of uh, high-dose vasopressors uh, and or are are in need of two vasopressors to maintain an adequate mean arterial pressure. Those, those generally are the patients that, that I use corticosteroids on, and, and the corticosteroid uh, that, that we use is hydrocortisone, which I, I know most clinicians tend to use, and the dose is usually 100 uh, milligrams uh, Q8 or, or uh, some version of that, depending again on how severe the hypotension is, uh, but but studies really have been done uh, with a dose up to 400. So anything uh, in that range, less than 400 milligrams uh, uh, per day in divided doses. Um, what is not uh, a good practice is to use very high doses of hydrocortisone. By that I mean anything that goes beyond 400 milligrams. Uh, a day of hydrocortisone or its equivalent would not would not be advisable. So, so it sounds like in terms of the dosing, a range of 200 to 400 um, milligrams of hydrocortisone or equivalent per day in divided doses is probably what will be supported by the by the current literature. And the, really, the caveat here is not to exceed that 400 because there's probably no benefit and there can be potential harm. Is that correct? Yes, and we also stipulated a duration, um, and we know this is certainly uh, very uh, dynamic or fluid. Uh, we recommended that the dose, whatever its use, whether it's uh, 200, 300 uh, per day of hydrocortisone or equivalent, usually hydrocortisone, that that be maintained uh, for at least three full days at, 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 at the full dose uh, and, not, and not be tapered rapidly uh, unless the patient is totally off vasopressors, in which case the taper can can then ensue. Um, and that is where we felt the literature uh, was was more solid in terms of 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 making that recommendation. Uh, I've been asked multiple times, what do you do with the patients? Do you really keep them uh, seven days or ten days? and And that's really a question. Uh, that clinicians have to look at besides the evidence, they have to look at the benefits and harms and, uh, and cost of, of keeping patients on steroids. I, granted that they are relatively inexpensive, but I, I think we're more concerned about uh, super infections, electrolyte issues, hyperglycemia, et cetera, that can become a problem. And so, so while steroids might be a good adjunct in shock reversal, uh, steroids have a lot of uh, side effects as well, and so that always has to be balanced. So if one were to use uh, stress dose steroids or steroids for septic shock, um, the, it should be used at full dose for at least three or more days, depending on how the patient is responding. Uh, we don't advocate using high dose and then cutting out only after one or two days. So let's just use some scenarios to be very specific for the audience. So. What you're saying is that at a minimum, if we initiate corticosteroids, we should probably treat them for three days at the full dose. And if yes. uh, if after three days they are off off vasopressors and what we consider to be hemodynamically stable, would it be okay to just stop the pressors at, stop the corticosteroids at that point? So there are many clinicians uh, who may be tempted to do that. There is some literature that there sometimes can be a rebound phenomenon when the steroids are abruptly stopped, where there can be rebound inflammation and cytokine release that can make the patient hypotensive again. Again, this is a, a clinical decision. Uh, I think 
uh, I generally in practice wait until the vasopressors are off for a reasonably good period of time, uh, not cutting out the steroids within a few hours of having gone on, you know, gotten off the, the vasopressors. So whether that's 12 hours or 24 hours, it usually is within that time frame. Uh, you know, if I'm going to be stopping the steroids, it usually will be not instantaneous after they come off the, the pressors. And you would, and is you, is your practice? And I know that the, the literature is not definitive here, but based on what you mentioned with the potential rebound, your practice would be that after three days as a minimum, once you achieve hemodynamic stability, defined as 12 to 24 hours off base suppressors, you would do a taper. Is that correct? Yes, or is taper, or even really a a, a discontinuation at that point. Okay, excellent. So let's let's talk uh, one more question regarding treatment and uh, w where do we stand, uh, Steve, on uh, infusions of hydrocortisone? So let's say we choose the right dose, but instead of giving it in divided doses, uh, we we give it in in a continuous infusion. And I guess the argument would be that it might help with glycemic control. Yes. So there are many centers. Uh, in fact, in 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 Europe, this is a com more common practice than here in the U.S where they give uh, the hydrocortisone uh, as a continuous infusion of 10 milligrams an hour. So that's 240 milligrams per day. Uh, whereas the practice in the United States uh, uh, tends to be more giving it in intermittent dosing of 100 Q12 or 100 Q8. Uh, and it's very common for those of us uh, to see this this hyperglycemia spike, uh, you know, within an hour or so after that 100 or 200 doses given. Um, so the claim has been that the continuous infusion does seem to be associated with less of those spikes uh, and, and provides a better control of blood glucose. Uh, and some of the literature on glycemic control also state that, well, it's not like you're not keeping their sugars uh, in a well-controlled range of, let's say, 140 to 180, which we tend to do now compared to, let's say, 10 years ago, but it's how much you're keeping them in that nice range versus the up and down swings, which many have been uh, uh, have been found uh, to be associated actually with somewhat uh, worse outcomes in some patients because of the erratic way the sugars are getting controlled uh, in, in patients. And so, uh, I, I think there is there is literature to support the practice of continuous uh, infusion, um, although although in in actual practice, whether it's uh, because of, of 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 the ease of maybe giving things intermittently rather than worrying about another bag of fluid with medication to hang uh, and uh, administer to patients who may not uh, you know uh, tolerate another. Uh, small amount of, of volume. Uh, I think these are more, I would say, more practical aspects. Uh, I think in centers that can do this well with their pharmacists in the ICU, I think the practice can be uh, supported well. And those that prefer to do it intermittently, uh, they just have to realize there are these spikes in, in glucose levels uh, around the time of uh, uh, those higher dose uh, admin, uh, administration, in which case, more uh, use of insulin may be required uh, in those settings. Excellent. So I think that that's a, a great clarification and just gives our, our our clinicians more more options to think about. But like you said, it probably depends on what are the what's the ability at each individual ICU to provide one one or the other. Let's move on, Steve, to ARDS. And I think that you mentioned that a little bit earlier. This is one of the the diseases, obviously, where We've centered a lot of our research re regarding the use of corticosteroids, and now maybe the, the focus is more around CERCI, but where do we stand today in terms of treating patients with ARDS with corticosteroids? So I think we have very uh, good to strong evidence that corticosteroids uh, should not be used for the treatment of patients with late ARDS. By that, I mean uh, ARDS that develops in patients in the ICU, uh, that's, let's say, two weeks or beyond. Uh, I think where much of the uh, uh, controversy uh, or discussion or debate on rounds and in, in the literature and in practice 
is what about those patients where you're contemplating using it early and how would you define the severity of the ARDS? And so we have more recent definitions from the you know, Berlin Conference uh, published in JAMA in 2012. Um, but when we uh, started uh, doing the guidelines, uh, we, we were still going with what the literature was uh, showing us and many of the studies uh, for early and late ARDS happened to be uh, uh, at, a, at time periods where the previous definitions uh, of the severity of ARDS uh, were still being used. And so when we set out to address this question in patients, uh, again, adult, emphasizing that this was an adult guideline, uh, even our recommendations in sepsis and septic shock really were meant for adults uh, specifically, but for ARDS, particularly those with early and what we would call moderate to severe ARDS, that is a PA-FiO2 ratio less than 200, and within 14 days of onset, I would even maybe qualify that as within the first few days, um, we suggested uh, based on moderate quality of evidence uh, that corticosteroids could be considered for those patients. So in terms of the way, the way I understand it is clearly the, the idea of treating that fiber proliferative or late ARDS stage is not something that's recommended, and that if we are to use corticosteroids in our patients with ARDS, it should be for those who have moderate to severe ARDS as defined by the PAO2-FiO2 ratio, and it should be used in the early phases, correct? Yes. Do you, can you mention a little bit more specifics in terms of the dosing and duration that you would use in your practice if you chose to use steroids yes. for ARDS? So Yes, so we, we, we uh, recommended um, that for patients um, with early uh, ARDS up to day seven of onset with a PF ratio less than 200, the dose uh, of corticosteroid uh, would be one milligram per kilogram per day of methylprednisolone. Uh, notice that uh, methylprednisolone is favored uh, for ARDS as the corticosteroid uh, agent of choice in contrast to hydrocortisone for patients with refractory septic shock. Methylprednisolone uh, is certainly much more anti-inflammatory and I think is the most tested agent. It has greater penetration into the lung. It stays in the lung longer. It's the most studied corticosteroid preparation for lung inflammation. So a dose of one milligram per kilogram per day uh, in an adult patient with early ARDS, PF ratio less than 200 is what we suggested. And in the setting uh, before day 14, let's say you know day seven to day 13, where you have a situation where the presentation of the ARDS is somewhat early, but not too late, uh, then we recommended in those patients who were remaining mechanically ventilated with continuing hypoxemic respiratory failure and ARDS, the dose there is the higher dose because that's been the dose of two milligrams per kilogram per day with slow taper uh, over the next two weeks has been the most studied regimen. And I think we uh, have that information uh, in the digital uh, supplement. Uh, I will inform the, uh, the readers uh, of the article, uh, Sergio, that uh, there is a correction on the uh, forest plots uh, that are in the supplement for ARDS with regards to the mechanical ventilation free days and the mortality and superinfection uh, graphs. Uh, we noted this after the online publication came out. Uh, the journals are waiting uh, for when the print versions get released to add to add that erratum so that anybody referring to the supplement would see the corrected forest plots for the ARDS uh, uh, corticosteroid uh, evidence. Well, that's a, a good, to good to know and thanks for sharing that Steve. So let me just clarify for, for ARDS if you were to start early in a very severe patient 
at the dose of one milligram per kilogram, how long would you treat them? So most most clinicians uh, will 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 generally uh, treat patients uh, for at least several days. Again, the data and the studies are 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 many and using various types of regimens depending on what the cost of the ARDS is it community or hospital acquired pneumonia leading to ARDS uh, many of the studies uh, in that particular setting have also used different preparations of of steroids um, and so I think the best that we could come up with is is certainly to keep patients uh, with whatever with whatever uh, steroid preparation that they're using, I, I will just say in my practice, it's it's usually methylprednisolone, and usually staying with the same dose until there is significant improvement in oxygenation, reduction in inflammation. Some centers will use inflammatory markers to guide that decision, uh, and that the taper should be done uh, slowly and not rapidly because of that rebound phenomenon that can occur in patients uh, whose steroids are are stopped rather abruptly. And to understand that using the lower dose of methylprednisolone has not been shown to be associated with a higher incidence of hospital-acquired infection. Uh, it has not been associated with a higher risk for GI bleeding or actual bleeding, uh, neuromuscular weakness, uh, it does certainly uh, uh, remains associated uh, with hyperglycemia, but the other side effects or adverse effects of steroids really were, are, are, tend to be more prominent uh, when the corticosteroid doses are in the higher range at the two milligram per kilogram per day range rather than the one milligram. So I think the one milligram per kilogram per day for early severe ARDS has generally been well tolerated with less side effect profile. And most patients should stay on that same dose until there is significant improvement in oxygenation. That could range from five to seven days uh, and, then, and then slowly tapered over the next week or two after that if, if they've shown some clinical improvement. So, so it seems that a, a, a good distinction between treating patients with septic shock and patients with ARDS would be that in ARDS patients, we're using a different um, choice for, for corticosteroids, the methylprednisolone, but we're also treating probably for a longer period of time. And because of that, maybe our weaning or our tapering should be also more gradual. Is that correct? Correct, because the, the severity of the lung inflammation is such that it's unlikely that if you were to use uh, methylprednisolone, let's say for three to five days, that you would see a, a dramatic response uh, and so these patients generally tend to require a longer period, in which case, if you're stopping them during a longer period, you probably should be tapering them uh, to, be, to be on the safe side. Whereas if you're using it for shock reversal, if they're no longer in shock and you're using hydrocortisone and you're trying to uh, discontinue it, uh, stopping it uh, over a five, you know, at day five or day six really does not uh, does not have much of an issue because it's it's for that shock reversal indication as compared to uh, ARDS where uh, you you need you need a much longer uh, period of time for a really long inflammation to uh, get attenuated. Excellent. So I think that in terms of the last population that I have interest and in, I know that the guidelines do address this and this might be a short a short commentary. Uh, what about patients with trauma? Here we felt that corticosteroids should not be used uh, in patients with major trauma. Uh, however, with that said, the recommendation is again conditional uh, and we judge the quality of the evidence um, to be on the low side. Uh, and there were issues um, uh, regarding uh, uh, the trial design, uh, risk of bias, uh, the different doses that were used. Uh, and there was just so many um, uh, types of corticosteroids, uh, different durations, formulations, um, uh, and imprecision in the, in the pooled results. And we mentioned this in the paper, um, but it all seemed to point in the direction uh, 
that corticosteroids uh, were not really uh, associated with a significant enough benefit and in some patients actually uh, may have caused even harm. Okay, excellent. Well, I think that, Steve, that uh, this is obviously a topic that, as you mentioned, is very dynamic and still evolving. We'll look forward to um, new uh, data as these large trials that you mentioned get published, and hopefully we'll be able to have you to come in and give us your commentary and your expertise. Uh, one of the things that we try to do also in Critical Matters is uh, tap into the wisdom of our guest and just talk about other aspects that I think are also relevant to the practice of critical care. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to ask you just a couple of rapid-fire questions outside of the topic of Cersei. Sure. So is there a book or books that have influenced you the most, or what book have you gifted most often to others? <laughs> you know, as I was growing up, I, I used to lead, uh, to read uh, a lot of finance books and management books, thinking that I was going to be an investor. What happened? <laughs> was gonna run was gonna run a company. I don't know if my uncle uh, in Bayside, uh, Queens, New York, uh, may have had that influence because he was always looking at his stocks and 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 he sort of like was was giving me financial advice. So uh, I ended up reading a lot of finance books as I was getting uh, uh, older. Uh, I, I began to venture mo mostly into uh, you know spy novel kind of books, uh, but but more recently, I was at a um, at a uh, a burnout summit of the Critical Care Societies Collaborative, and one of the invited guests there uh, is a self-described medical musician, Sergio. Okay. And he gave me a book. His name is Andrew Shulman. Okay. And he has he has a, a bestseller. I've started to read it. I haven't finished the whole book. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about it. It's called Waking the Spirit. I have not heard about it, but it sounds and, interesting. Uh, yes, this was a patient who had uh, a uh, uh, what what was thought initially on uh, coming into uh, surgery thought that he had pancreatic cancer and they were going to do a Whipple procedure. Luckily for him, it wasn't a cancer. But nevertheless, he developed post-operative complications and actually had a, a cardiac arrest and post-op and, and basically uh, was in the surgical ICU here in New York City. And uh, the bottom line is he survived that episode. And one of the tools that he really uh, subscribes to have turned his life around and, and made him get better was the introduction of music into his ears, which his wife kind of insisted that the clinicians do. This was at a time when, you know, we thought that giving uh, headphones and playing music in a patient that's resting and sedated and whatnot, you know, may not necessarily be a good idea. Well, he felt that really helped him because as that music was being played in his ears, uh, the the book seems to suggest, and, and his surgical intensivist, in, which also helped him write the book, tells us like all his vital signs started improving his lactate which started at 17 fell and the bottom line is he got he got better and so i'm reading through this and and i think it's a very inspiring book waking so the far. spirit absolutely so we'll we'll Wait. share that with with people it sounds very interesting read uh, so going along is there something that you believe either in life or in critical care to be true that most people don't believe <laughs> One of the things that I, I think sometimes is like, you know, people can assume or even patients and their family members can assume that a patient is well, looks well, uh, but at the same time really can be very, very sick. And I, I think we learn that every day in our practice when we confront, um, you know, a patient or a family member of a patient is very sick in the ICU and they're really just wondering how sick the patient is and he looks so well last week or, or the other day, and how can he be so sick and now you're telling me he's dying in the ICU? And, and so sometimes navigating through that, you know, where you could, you could look well, uh, but can be very sick inside. And I, I think we all have to, to sometimes, you know, stop and reflect at that, and that can actually happen. Um, that you could, you, you could be very, you know, you could look well, but actually be, be, be sick, and that applies to us. 
uh, as well as to, to to patients that we care for. You know, and I think that that's a great point. And and uh, once uh, somebody told me when I was training that sometimes the most difficult task is to identify who's sick and who's not. And I think it kind of falls in that realm that uh, even critical care physicians sometimes can be fooled, but also, I mean, as family members, that is something that I think is sometimes very difficult to navigate. Mm-hmm. And we try to teach this to our fellows. Absolutely. And the last question, and I want to be very respectful of your time, uh, but the last question is, is there anything that you would want every intensivist or every sound critical care intensivist who's going to listen to this to know? Yes, I, I think, um, you know, we, we as intensivists, we like numbers. We like to reverse abnormal physiology. Um, you know, we like to do procedures uh, and try to apply our knowledge of various techniques. Um, but I, I think, and that's, and that's certainly uh, great and noble to do. Uh, but I, I think uh, for some patients um, who clearly are not responding um, to uh, what we would expect, uh, for the amount of aggressive interventions that we're that we're doing uh, to them, that we 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 realize and reflect uh, that maybe maybe you know there comes a point where we just have to realize our limitations, and and that as much as science has advanced in some of the things that we do, we you know there are there are just some patients that simply uh, are not getting help, and we should know when that time point comes and, and switch gears and, 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 and go more into the compassionate palliative uh, side of things and know our limits. And, and I think, you know, when I was younger, uh, you know, I, I was so much into, I went into critical care with the mindset of reversing abnormal physiology and doing procedures. And, and I, I realized, you know, 25 plus years later that, you know, there were times I would have been more aggressive if this was 25 years ago, but now I, I know my limits and I know when it's time to shift gears from being, you know, a, a doctor that can treat critical illness to a doctor that maybe should be more compassionate and realize that this patient is dying and, and better end of life rather than my intensivist uh, skills of doing procedures is what this patient needs. And I think that's a it's a great place to to stop. Is I think it's a very powerful message, and it's a message that I've heard with other with other with other of our guests as well. And I think it very well said. Uh, Steve, I want to thank you enormously for the generosity with your time and your expertise. I definitely look forward to having you uh, back when we have more, 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 more data to discuss. But also, I know that there are many other topics that that there are you're passionate about and you can uh, tell us a lot about. So hopefully, we'll we'll have you back. Thank you very much for being our guest. My pleasure, and thank you all for listening. Thanks again for listening to Critical Matters. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play.